You're listening to Johnson & Boone Solicitors Podcast exclusively on the Pod Station. Welcome everyone to episode 4 of the Johnson & Boone Podcast. My name's Mark. With me again this week... Uh, I sounded quite disappointed when I said that. I didn't mean to say that, Rob. It is Rob Boone, the uh, director of Johnson & Boone Solicitors. How are you doing? Hi, Mark. Yeah, very well. Yourself? I'm not too bad. I think we are going to get some of the other team on over the next few shows, but uh, because we're social distancing and self-isolating, it's a bit difficult at the moment. Yeah, we are. Over the next few weeks, we're going to have one or two guests and we're also going to have one or two people, for other members of the team, um, who are going to speak about areas of their expertise. And this week, we're going to be covering what? Disputes and litigation um, within the context of, of sort of civil litigation. Okay, so you can listen to all the previous shows. This is episode four. You can listen to some of the previous shows which have dealt with um, commercial issues, have dealt with landlord and tenant issues, which have dealt with shareholders' agreements and some of the issues that might arise from then. So a lot of that will tie into some of the things that we're going to be talking about today. If you want to check those previous shows out, where Rob has given some really useful advice and some pointers and tips on what you can do to try and minimise your risks, then you can go and check the show out. There's a whole plethora of options for where you can listen to it. You can go to johnsonandboone.co.uk. You can find it on there. You can download the free mobile app for Johnson & Boone where you can listen to it there. If you go to the website, uh, you will actually find links to all the major podcast platforms, so Apple, Google, Spotify, Deezer, Stitcher... The list goes on. You can listen to them all on there. In fact, if you subscribe, every time a new show becomes available, it will automatically download onto whatever device you use to listen to your podcast. So it'd be really cool to to go and check those out. Rob, I presume you're always happy to receive questions. In fact, we, we encourage questions. And if anyone's got any additional points that they'd want to raise about a particular topic, what email address can they use if they want to ask those questions? Yeah, if anyone's got any questions, then if they email them over to info at johnsonandburn.co.uk. Uh, and also, if there's any subjects that you'd like us to talk about on any of the shows, then also make suggestions and we'll try and cater. Because this is a, a show that's specifically designed for helping people and giving people opportunities to understand things, think about things, hopefully try and avoid things that might otherwise be a headache that they could do without. And ultimately, if if all else fails, then they have your expertise to fall back on. Yeah, they certainly do. Right, okay, so we should move on to our topic for this week, which is disputes and uh, litigation, which sounds quite a warm and fuzzy topic. Um, when we were mentioning this, what kind of disputes are you are you meaning? Um, they took they fall into tips of different categories, Mark. So the sort of disputes that we're talking about will come in varying shapes and sizes. For individuals, we're talking about things such as disputes over land, maybe disputes with neighbours, their landlord. Uh, it could be disputes involving uh, a tradesman or a, a professional they feel has let them down due to a poor service or or maybe some dodgy work that they've done in a in a property. Um, for businesses, we're talking more about um, contractual disputes, lease disputes, uh, or maybe complaints that they receive from their customers. If we're thinking back, so a couple of weeks back, we did um, a, an episode which involved a lot of content for letting agents. 
Then if you're talking about disputes that let an agent may be involved in, obviously they would be with the tenants. Um, so it's fairly wide and, and varied. So what would be the first step? How do you know when you've got a dispute? Um, well, you've got a dispute that you need help with at the point that you, you come into conflict with someone over a specific matter. So for um, disputes involving land, um, for example, the individual would, would first try to communicate with the other party um, to ascertain if the dispute can, can be resolved fairly quickly and without the need of, of getting any formal advice. Um, if that is impossible, then as I said, depending on the nature of the dispute, it may be appropriate to make a formal complaint. So it comes in more if it's with a, a tradesperson or um, anything involving a professional. It might be that they can make a complaint to the association or regulator, um, whichever may be the case for the given situation. If that isn't suitable or, or isn't successful, then uh, a party will normally then get legal advice, not only to make sure that they're right in the position that they're taking, but then also to get some help in terms of moving it forward. And what do you mean by moving it forward? Moving it forward can mean several things. It can mean that we would assist with negotiations between the parties, maybe assisting them to access mediation services, uh, or it may be as straightforward as helping them formulate uh, a formal letter of claim which is then sent and records uh, their position in the dispute, which is then the foundation upon which any legal proceedings would follow. And is that for sort of an individual and a business? Yeah, so um, whether it's a business or an individual, the process would be loosely similar uh, and we would become involved at a, a similar stage. Sometimes disputes involving businesses are more complex, so we'd be involved at an earlier stage uh, but generally, it'd be exactly the same. Now, if the dispute can't be resolved, uh, quite well, quite often people want to jump straight to the "I want my day in court" position. This sort of initial stage that you've just described, then one assumes that should be exhausted completely before you start thinking about legal action. Yeah, the parties should always uh, attempt to resolve a matter before they resort to any type of of, of claim by the court. And the court will expect the parties to have exhausted that as well. Um, there's many mediation services that are available if the parties don't feel that they can negotiate themselves or if it isn't suitable for, for formal negotiation via a solicitor. But all of those avenues should be explored, certainly before the claims issued at court. And what's the penalty if you don't do that? If you don't do that and the court feel that you've acted unreasonably, then the sanction is likely to be costs later on. So any legal costs that you've incurred or that have been incurred directly as a result of any unreasonable behaviour are, are likely to be awarded against that party. Okay, so let's assume that we have exhausted this initial process. We've we've tried our best to try and be reasonable. It's not got anywhere. Both parties have dug their heels in. There's no moving. Um, what happens next? If a dispute can't be resolved uh, and a party needs intervention from the court, to move towards the resolution that they do want. The first step within a, a money claim context would be to issue a claim form a court. Uh, this would normally be accompanied by a, doc, a document which is known as the particulars of claim. The claim form and the particulars of claim set out to the court the basis upon which the dispute uh, is brought before them and the losses that the party is looking to recover. 
they would both be sent to the court and the claimant would pay an issue fee. Uh, the court will then allocate the case a claim number and copies of everything will be sent over to the defendant. Uh, a defendant will then file an acknowledgement of service, which is just a, in, in basic terms, them acknowledging that they've received the claim together with an indication of whether they intend to defend the claim. And they do that within a period of 14 days. And if they do intend to file a defence, they then have a further 14 days in which to file that written defence at that stage. When you're starting a claims process, uh, what sort of things do you need to make sure are correct when you're preparing the court papers? It's really important when you're drafting the court papers that the, the parties are correct. So you can get away with amending certain things later on if you absolutely have to. It isn't ideal, but you can do so. Um, but you need to make sure that you are issuing proceedings, naming the correct parties. So if you're the claimant, you absolutely need to be sure that you're going against the correct defendant, whether that be an individual or a limited company or partnership. Um, and you need to make sure the service address that you're stating within the claim form is correct, because that's the address that the, the court office are going to use when sending the papers to the defendant. If that isn't right and they ultimately don't receive the papers um, and therefore they're not deemed served, as we'd say within the legal industry, any judgment that you get off the back of that would probably be set aside and you'd have wasted some time and perhaps money. So by set aside, you mean it be written off, cancelled, reversed? Yeah, the court would go back to the stage where the defendant would then be given the court papers and the process would resume again from that point. So if you'd already gone as far as to get an, um, a judgment in default, that would be set aside, i.e. would no longer exist, and you'd be back to square one. So getting the service of a claim right is really important right at the start. And would there be any financial penalties for getting it wrong? It'd be hard to say. It would depend upon the specific circumstance. Um, what would probably happen is you, at the point that you try to enforce the judgment, um, you may find a different address, say, for the defendant, and that's how they become aware of the case. They would probably instruct solicitors, and those solicitors would ask you to consent to the judgment being set aside on the basis that the original service the claim was ineffective. Um, if you agreed at that point, then you would have just wasted your money up to that point, but there wouldn't necessarily be any cost consequences. If you didn't agree and they had to make an application, then it would be open to the court to award whatever costs they incur in making that application against you uh, because it all arises from your error. Is there a time limit for bringing a case? Most cases um, have a, a statute bar, so a maximum limit in which you have to bring them, certainly money cases of six years. Anything involving injury is three years. Uh, but there are lots of different limitation periods for lots of different types of matters. So if you had a case that was unusual, it didn't involve a monetary loss um, or it didn't involve an injury, you'd be better seeking advice um, in relation to your case specifically to make sure you that you don't miss that. If you miss the limit and you try to bring the case late, um, then the other side will file a defence to say you've missed your opportunity, you're out of time. Uh, and the court would probably stop you from bringing the claim at that stage unless you had a really good reason. And um, why is there those kind of limitations? It's more to make sure that years and years later, the party can't bring a claim uh, that arises out of an action that, that took place you know, in the past. Um, 
six years is quite a long time and there's lots and lots of much shorter limitation periods in other jurisdictions. Um, the value of evidence will, will generally go down over that time. Uh, and it's just seen as a, a fair time limit in which if you haven't brought a case within that period, it would be unjust for you to be able to continue to hold the potential action over someone for an undefinitive period of time that stems off into the future. Do you have a passion, hobby or expertise and want to share it with the world? Why not do a podcast? The PodStation offers a wide range of packages to make this a reality, ranging from training and support for those who have no idea where to begin to podcasters who just need somewhere to host their show. With prices starting at a mere £15 per month, you can now get involved in one of the fastest growing entertainment forms in the world without all the headaches. To find out more, visit thepodstation.co.uk forward slash station dash packages. And remember, those with passion, podcast. And I suppose flipping that on its head for a second, if you are, uh, if someone's bringing a claim against you, uh, it's probably worthwhile getting some legal advice when you receive those papers to find out what your position is but more importantly, to look at things like whether or not there's any limitation issues. Yeah, so everything that we're saying, you know, we're assuming that we're acting here for the claimant, uh, but defendants will equally need legal advice. Uh, Not every claim that is issued has merits, um, and many cases are successfully defended. So if you're coming at it from a defendant's perspective, as soon as you receive the letter of claim, really, is the time that you'd get legal advice and you'd get assistance from a solicitor in relation to responding to the claim. But if you don't, for whatever reason, get advice at that stage, you certainly need advice at the point the proceedings are issued uh, and you need help filing your defence at court in compliance with, again, the civil procedure rules that we keep mentioning. And can you act for both? claimants and defendants obviously not on the case same case that that speaks for itself but i do johnson and boone deal with both claimants and defendants yeah we routinely act for both uh, the claimants and the defendants as you say not in the same case um you'd have a clear conflict of interest uh, but we can represent parties on both sides of the fence uh, and we do regularly do so and is that because you, each case is different? And so I, I guess what I'm saying is there isn't a, a stigma attached to you just act, act for one side and not, not another side. No, I mean, as I say, you know, there's many cases that are brought that aren't legitimate cases that are successfully defended. Um, so acting for defendants, um, acting for claimants, everything's arising out of the civil procedure rules, as I say. So where equally equipped for both. If someone's got a good case or, or got a bad case, it can fall to either the claimant or the defendant. Uh, we'd be advising them on the strengths of the case um, and then we'd be taking instructions in terms of how they wanted to deal with the matter moving forward. When you're filing these initial court papers, do you need to make sure that you've got all your evidence together at this stage or does that come later? You wouldn't necessarily have to file your evidence, but you have to put sufficient information with the claim in the first instance to allow the defendant to respond. So your particulars of claim need to fully set out the basis of your claim, how you've pulled it together, what losses you are referring to, uh, and it is always helpful to file evidence as well at the same time. And you mentioned a track. What determines, well, I suppose the first question is, what is a track and 
what are the differences between the different tracks and how do you find out which track you're going to be put on? Yeah, so within the context of civil and commercial litigation, cases are started either on the Part 7 or Part 8 procedure. So the first thing for people to understand is that there are tracks, but there's also two different procedures to tussle with. Um, the Part 8 procedure is used where a rule or practice direction requires or permits it, uh, or where the claimant seeks the court's decision on a question that is unlikely to involve a substantial dispute as to fact. Part 8 claims are generally allocated to what's called the multi-track. Now, the Part 7 procedure is the more common of the two procedures. Uh, this is for um, proceedings where the claimant is seeking monetary relief and, and any amount that they are seeking is equal normally to, to a loss or detriment that they've suffered. Under the Part 7 procedure, there are three different tracks. So people will have commonly heard of the small claims track. That is for cases with a value of up to £10,000. There is the fast track. That's for cases generally with a value between 10 and 25,000 pounds. And then there's the multi-track, which is reserved for either complex cases or cases with a value exceeding 25,000 pounds, depending upon which of the tracks the court allocates the claim to will vary the steps that any given party has to follow between the commencement of the claim and it reaching trial. And what are the major character differences between those three tracks why should a mind whether or not my case falls within a small or a fast track the main difference mark really relates to costs and complexity so the small claims track is designed for litigants in person so i.e people representing themselves to be able to go from the point of issue and the claim right the way through to a trial it's fairly straightforward uh, and there's less complexities for them to overcome. With that in mind, if they do instruct solicitors to, to assist them with a small claim, they won't generally recover any legal costs that they incur. And that's the unique thing about the small claims track is that if a matter is allocated to either of the other two tracks, the losing party will be ordered to pay the other party's legal costs and the court will assess those costs and it will be included within any judgment that they obtain. And what about the fast track then? The fast track and the multi-track are very similar. The multi-track has several additional steps in relation to cost budgeting and additional procedural hearings that might take place. The idea of the fast track is to give standard directions to parties and they'll be guided through to trial as quickly as possible while still allowing enough time for, for proper process to be followed. So... It's very standardised, the directions that will be followed. It will start with allocation and they'll be formally allocated to fast track. And then the parties will go through stages of disclosure where they have to list to the other party all of the evidence that they'll rely upon and provide disclosure of those documents, witness statements. There may be another procedural hearing and then the court will be listing it for trial. Multi-track is often for more complex cases where it might need a greater depth of case management uh, and they can take a bit longer. You mentioned about Part 7 and Part 8 proceedings. What do you mean by Part 7 and Part 8? Part 7 and Part 8 are, are two parts of the civil procedure rules under which uh, a case can be brought. So a Part 8 is relevant for cases that either are specifically listed 
So, for example, certain landlord and tenant matters are specifically listed as being part eight matters or for other cases that are unlikely to have a material dispute of fact that needs to be decided by the court. If there's going to be a material dispute of fact or if it's just a money claim, then the part seven procedure is normally the suited one. And the civil procedure rules, what are those? That is the big white book of rules that our solicitors use within uh, the context of civil litigation um, in, and it gives us, us full guidance as to what has to, has to be done. All the rules and practice directions are there and they're what all the civil courts will follow. So are there many civil procedure rules? Yeah, there's, I mean, there's lots and lots of rules within the civil procedure rules. Um, it gets added to and adapted all the time. Uh, there's been some emergency changes recently um, off the back of the, the COVID-19 pandemic and, and how the courts are dealing with certain things um, as a result. So it is fairly complicated and it is vast and it covers everything from the evidence that you'll be filing at court through to how the trial will be conducted um, so yeah, there's there's a lot to digest if someone's going to be doing it themselves. Do those rules apply to just solicitors? No, they apply to any party who is going to engage. Um, the court will be slightly more lenient and will help a party understand the rules, but everybody is bound to follow them. And um, for example, in things such as Part 36 offers, uh, litigants in person who are going to tussle with that as an area uh, would really be better getting advice before they do so. I've, I've had a lot of quick questions that you weren't expecting. Um, and just to sort of summarise it, uh, there is a, a set of rules called the Civil Procedure Rules, which are a, a big guide of what you are expected to do and how you're expected to do it when you start a, a claim. And these rules apply to everybody, whether you're a solicitor or a litigant in person, so you're trying to do the claim yourself, you might get a bit more flexibility if you don't comply with something, but will largely still be expected to put that right, even if you didn't realise you were not doing something. Um, yeah, before you mentioned about the small claims being quite geared towards people acting on their own or f f on behalf of them themselves, um, and with these rules in place, it, does that not create a problem? Because you've essentially got people who don't have the same experience and qualifications as you, don't have the knowledge of this enormous book of rules, but yet are pursuing a case which essentially still holds them to the same level that you guys will be expected to do, even though you've got all these resources. So is the statement not more, you should really have a solicitor for a case, whether it's a small or fast or a multi-track case? Yeah, ideally you would always be represented within proceedings, um, especially you know if, if the value of your claims towards the upper end of the small claims track, then it would still make commercial sense for you to have a solicitor at that point. Um, anything which is really low value, then the courts are more likely to be even more lenient in terms of the rules. And they do give really straightforward directions for parties to follow in the small claims track matters. Um, but it, it would be advisable for a party to at least get some legal advice to ensure that their position legally was correct before they cracked on and issued the claim themselves. So if it's a small claim, so it's relatively low value and it just doesn't make commercial sense to have a solicitor running throughout the, the length of a, a small claim, which 
stages would you recommend it still be worth getting maybe some advice on what to do or maybe even some help in preparing some of the specific documents they're going to need so that they can still run the case larger themselves but are doing so uh, in compliance with the rules are giving them the best chance of winning even if they are trying to 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 act on as a litigant in person it would make sense for them to get advice before the claim was issued. And if you're going to instruct a solicitor to do any of the stages, then you'd instruct them to prepare the claim form and the particulars of claim so that at least your case is is set out fully and properly uh, and includes all of your losses. Um, after that, really, you might get some help in relation to the witness statements elements, making sure that you are saying everything that you need to say. Um, you might get some advice when you first get the directions to make sure that you understand what all the directions are requesting of you. But the next thing that I would highly recommend they get advice with and help with would be the hearing. And whether that be that you pay a solicitor to turn up for you or you pay for an advocate to go of, of some other description, it is difficult for parties who have had no previous involvement with the court to deal with the the hearing which is essentially a trial themselves and by that you mean having to cross-examine witnesses having to make arguments to the court having to be able to rely upon legal basis for your claim uh, again going back to the whole rules will apply to you in the same way you will need to answer these kind of things in that trial environment it's quite stressful i guess yeah it can be relatively daunting for an individual who doesn't come into contact with the court on a daily basis to have to represent themselves at a hearing thinking not only the answers that they'll be given themselves in relation to anything that they're asked but also to ask questions of the other party under cross-examination and then to concisely and, and coherently um, narrow their arguments down into proper submissions for the court uh, so that things go their way on the day. There are advocates that can be instructed and we can assist with the instruction of those advocates um, so that you get professional help on the day, even if that is the only thing that you do seek help with. I guess what we are saying is that it's not a case of don't do it yourself for these small claim cases if it makes commercial sense not to instruct a solicitor. However, there are some solutions that can be um, acquired more commercially sensibly so you can get really useful advice and you can get proper drafting of documents at key points throughout that process to give you the best chance of being successful or to make sure you're not just wasting your time and your money um, just by doing it yourself and being sort of bloody minded within your own war which perhaps you don't have the best perspective of yeah, absolutely. We're happy to assist with as much or as little of the process as um, an individual wants us to. And if that stops at us having an initial meeting with them, just to make sure that they're actually legally correct in the position that they're putting forward, we're happy with that. If that means that we take over the whole process and we do everything with them, then we're equally happy with that. We'll be guided by our clients um, and what makes commercial sense within that particular case but presumably it's better to do seek the 
the advice at the beginning because if you get three quarters of the way through the process and it turns out you've not done it correctly, unpicking that and redoing that's probably going to be more expensive than if they'd have just got some help at the outset. It is, or, or worst case scenario, you get the advice at that point that you're incorrect in your position and the likelihood is you're going to lose, at which point you've wasted both your time and your money. Uh, up to that stage. Check out award-winning Johnson & Boone Solicitor's unique product, Legal Guard. Ideal for businesses and individuals, Legal Guard ensures you get the legal help you need when you need it. Packages start from just £24 a month and include free expert advice, access to a library of legal documents, as well as exclusive discounts on a range of services. For more information, visit johnsonandboon.co.uk forward slash legal guard and quote the code THECHESH. Okay, we've started the court process. Does that mean that we, we're not allowed to negotiate with them? Is it just once you're on that court process, there's no getting off until you end up in front of a judge at trial? No, absolutely not. So the parties will be required to continue to negotiate um, right the way through to the point of any trial. Um, and the trial should be a last resort. So both parties should remain committed with or without the help of their legal representatives to trying to get matters resolved. You mentioned mediation before. I, I suspect this is a, a, a show in itself, but just quickly, what, what do you mean by mediation so people understand about how that fits into that negotiation process? Well, if, if you take an example of the small claims track, for example, one of the early directions that the parties will get is they will be asked if they will take part in, in small claims mediation. And this basically involves a telephone discussion normally with a court representative, so not necessarily a judge, but an officer of the court. And they will go through both parties' respective positions with them on the telephone, and they'll try and narrow the issues and see if any agreements can be made. And it often results in the settlement of the case. So a mediation, really, um, in that context, is somebody getting between the parties and seeing if a resolution can be found. Is that the only way of doing it, where you arrange a mediation meeting? Or can you write to them to suggest terms to set? Can you meet with them? Yeah, there's various ways in which a case may be settled after the issue of court proceedings. Um, you can make informal written offers, as you say. Um, the parties will, however, especially if they've instructed solicitors, negotiate by making formal Part 36 offers. Um, a Part 36 offer is a formal offer which arises out of Part 36 of the civil procedure rules that we mentioned earlier on. Um, it's fairly complex uh, in, in terms of its, its overall um, meaning and effect and how it needs to be dealt with. But what it, it generally does is it sets out what a party will accept to conclude the matter and it gives the other party 21 days in which to accept or reject that offer. Uh, and it's a great tactic that is often used to resolve cases after proceedings have been issued. In your experience, how many cases settle through negotiations as opposed to going to trial? The vast majority of cases should be resolvable without reaching a trial. Um, sometimes, and, and especially in the larger value cases, the parties will commit to attending a, a joint settlement meeting 
which would normally involve um, representatives and each party attending somewhere physically for a day, uh, maybe a, a barrister's chambers or something like that. And they'd spend the day going backwards and forwards and trying to narrow the issues uh, and hopefully eventually result in a settlement. Um, in the current um, situation with, with social distancing, etc., that is still taking place, but it's taking place by way of video conferencing. So there's lots of ways post-issue in which a, a case can still be resolved. Um, and really speaking, it should be if a case makes it as far as a trial, it's a failed negotiation. I'm glad you said that at the end. One of the things I was going to ask you was very much quite often people have this this mindset where they want their day in trial. They've got an ironclad case in their mind and in their opinion, they want it in front of a judge as quickly as possible because they feel that they're absolutely going to win. Um, you mentioned the negotiation aspect, so if they haven't tried to exhaust that negotiation part, they're going to end up getting penalised or looked at unfavourably to a degree. What other negatives might there be for why you would want to avoid going to a trial? Because as I say, I want my day in court because I think I'm going to win. Where are the flaws in that argument, even if I do legitimately have a good case? Even with a legitimately good case, even with a very good case, there's always a litigation risk because when you put a case before the court, you in the civil court, you have a, a judge who has to make a decision. So just because you feel you have a good case, it doesn't mean things are going to go well on the day of the trial. You might have witnesses who don't say what they what you believe they're going to say or may not be as convincing as you think they may be. Um, and in every case, there has to be a winner and there has to be a loser. So no party should really just bullishly bat on to, to trial if they can help it. They should try to, to resolve it because if you can settle a case, that comes with certainty. And it also saves you the unnecessary costs that are incurred uh, with barristers, etc., in attendant trials. Is witness evidence really that important? You mentioned about how convincing they might be. Does a judge legitimately make a decision based on whether somebody said something that sounded right or whether it was convincing as being true? The judge will make a decision based on any evidence available, and that includes any witness evidence. So if there isn't any tangible evidence on a certain point, then it often falls to be decided upon the verbal account that is given by any lay witnesses. Um, how much weight a court will give to a witness depends upon who they are and how intrinsically linked they are with the claimant or the defendant. Are they independent or not? But if you have um, independent witness evidence that supports your case, then the court will attach a fair amount of weight to that when making a decision. Uh, when you've got a decision, whether it be some agreed terms following a negotiation or if a judge makes a decision, what normally happens then? If you're talking about an agreed decision off the back of a negotiation, then the parties would normally agree a consent order. So that's an order that the party solicitors would draft. It would be signed by both parties and filed a court for approval. Once approved, it then becomes a judgment or an order. The same applies if a decision is made at trial, you then get a judgment and the parties would be expected to comply with either of those two. If they don't, then it's a case of you have to consider enforcement options uh, and it's normally the claimant who is trying to recover whatever amount they've been ordered by the court. 
you mentioned enforcement there of of a judgment that's a show which i think we're going to do as a completely separate topic because there's quite a lot to go into there in terms of the current circumstances which at this moment in time is joined a coronavirus pandemic and there's some very hard-hitting economic issues that will unbearably unravel as a consequence of people either not being able to trade or not being getting bills paid whether it's they can't fulfill terms of, of agreement how do you think with that environment the likes of litigation is going to become an issue what the courts are trying to do at the moment is move cases along best they can um, but they're certainly not having face-to-face hearings which is having a knock-on effect in terms of whether trials can take place etc so anything which is deemed non-urgent is being pushed back but a lot of the procedural elements are still being dealt with or anything which is really urgent is still being dealt with. When it comes to enforcement um, of a judgment, it obviously has a knock-on effect there as well because, um, as you say, we will do a separate show on this. But if you take high court enforcement, for example, high court enforcement agents aren't able to attend people's properties at the moment. Therefore, it's less of a useful tool. But there are other things Um, For example, the court are still processing charging orders for people to secure the monies against the property. Um, So I think it's just a case-by-case basis. If you have a judgment and you can't get payments, you'd have to seek advice specifically at that stage. And what key advice or tips would you be giving to people right now if they're able to perceive or suspect or are worried that a dispute might be on the horizon or has already started? with the context of the current situation that's out there, with the context of how the courts might be dealing with things at the moment? It's even more important at the moment that the parties try to resolve matters without the court's intervention. Um, When all this is over, we don't know what sort of backlogs they're going to be in terms of the court dealing with matters, because there's normally, you know, many, many hearings all over the country that take place every single day that at the moment are unable to take place. So the process is likely to be longer than it may normally be in terms of actually getting in front of the court. Um, It's also important at the moment in the current light of of what's going on that that people understand the changing landscape. Um, And it's even more important in light of that, that they get legal advice on points as they go, just to make sure nothing's changing that they aren't aware of. and that can all be dealt with just within an initial consultation. And by that, I guess you mean you might have a contract with somebody, you might actually be perfectly right in your interpretation of those terms and the breach made by the other side, but that there may be nuanced factors that you need to take into account about how the court might perceive an air of sympathy towards the people who might have breached it if it's if it turns out that the circumstances are caused by this coronavirus pandemic. Yeah, we did an earlier episode, didn't we, in terms of all the effects that um, that could be on contracts. Um, what we'd hope to do in the current situation upon receipt of instructions is not only make sure that our clients understood that where they were uh, legally in relation to the situation, but perhaps get involved to maybe defuse the situation and explain what may be quite a complex situation to the other party, uh, hopefully so the dispute doesn't need to go any further. All right, brilliant. You could probably go on for another couple of hours asking questions about the civil procedure rules, the most bizarre things you come across when you're trying to deal with a a, a litigated matter. 
if people want some advice, what let's give them the contact information again in case they want to pick your brains or get some help and assistance. Yeah, of course. So if people want to pick the phone up, they can call us on 0151 637 2034. They can email us on info at uk. They can find us on any of our social platforms uh, or they can download our app uh, and they can book a consultation straight into any of the diaries of our solicitors. Brilliant. I mentioned at the outset that you can also download the Johnson & Boone mobile app. It's completely free. It's on both Apple and Android uh, app stores. Why would you do that? Well, of course, you can get full details of all of the services that we offer. You can book appointments with staff uh, via the app. Uh, which is really handy, saves a lot of messing around. Uh, you can listen to this podcast, of course. Uh, you can check out useful tips and news articles which should go on there. Uh, there's also Legal Guard, isn't there, which you, if you are a member, you can log in there and access all of the benefits there. If people are interested in Legal Guard, um, what kind of things can they look forward to receiving? All of our Legal Guard members receive free advice by way of, of consultations each month. They receive uh, free letters if they are involved in, in any dispute with anyone. They can access all of the templates um, for um, many of the steps actually within the, the small claims track process. Um, so they can do all that with, with minimal um, assistance from us and any assistance that they did need would would fall free under their membership. So there's lots and lots of benefits. All of the information is available uh, on the Legal Guard uh, sections of both the app and our website. One of the benefits of Legal Guard is actually if you do decide you want to be a litigant in person, you can actually get a lot of the legal assistance that you've mentioned throughout this show, but at a, a fraction of the price, really. Yeah, absolutely. Brilliant. Um, okay, well, I, I think we've covered most things. Uh, what are we going to do next Next show, Rob? We're going to expand upon what we've spoken about today, uh, and we're going to go through the various ways in which a judgment can be enforced. Uh, and we also have a, a special guest on the next show who um, is a high court enforcement agent who is going to explain a little bit more about the world of high court enforcement how that works, the pitfalls, etc. Uh, so that'll be quite interesting. Yeah, indeed. It, it's not just a High Court Enforcement Officer, is it? We, we've actually got the celebrity um, High Court Enforcement Officer, Matthew Highway. He's previously been on the, the television programme, Can't Pay, We'll Take It Away. Uh, so many of our, our listeners might recognise him off there. Thank you very much for joining us, Rob. That was another fantastic episode. Hopefully you found it useful. As we said from the outset, uh, the email that Rob mentioned earlier, if you want to throw in some questions on matters that we haven't addressed specifically within this show, or if you've got any topics that you'd like to raise or suggest, then just fly them in. You can also catch Johnson & Boone on uh, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, and Twitter if you want to send a direct message as I say, go check out the website, johnsonandboon.co.uk. Download the mobile app. It's, it's really, really good. It's quite unique, particularly for a solicitor's firm as well, I have to say. And hopefully we, you've enjoyed the show. So thank you very much for listening, guys. And we'll catch you next time. Thanks very much. Cheers. Get social at Johnson and Boone on Instagram, Facebook and Twitter. Check out all our shows exclusively on thepodstation.co.uk. 